You are listening to House of Football, brought to you by Sports Joe. Hello, I'm Eric Lawler. Welcome to episode 38 of House of Football with Sports Joe. Delighted to say, joining the studio again by End of Call and via the, the witchcraft that is Zoom, former Irish international striker Simon Cox. Simon Cox, how the hell are you? And welcome to House of Football. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm good. Very well, thank you. You're looking very fit, looking very... Well, come here, can I just ask you, are you broadcasting from a prison cell at the moment? Because that looks a little bit like a cell from behind. Not that I know of what um, a prison cell looks like. I was going to say, when was the last time you were there? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, 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 this is uh, just one of the uh, consultation rooms that we have at, at the gym that I own. So it's, uh, yeah, it's upstairs. So if you hear some some strange music going on downstairs in a minute, that'll, uh, that'll be what the, the class is on. Brilliant. A class. So you're 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 running a gym now, uh, Simon. You're, you're keeping fit anyway. Keeping active. Yeah. Listen, I, I knew that if I uh, if I stopped working out when I finished playing, there was only one way for me, and that was going to probably end up with like uh, a very big waistline. So I felt it, 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 I needed something to do, and uh, and I listen. I got I got into the the fitness game when I went out to Australia. The um, the F forty fives out there were brilliant. So when I came back and retired it was it was definitely something that I felt like it was you know it was going to benefit me but obviously help you know loads of people around the area to, to stay healthy stay fit and where are you based there Simon this one's in South End South End um, my house my house is about 45 minutes away so I just travel in every, most days to be fair Simon can I ask this is something that I've been sort of questioning over the last couple of weeks watching Spurs and watching what Ange Postacoglu is doing with the Spurs players and how fit and fast and and quick they are in comparison to his Celtic side that you know sort of died on their feet around seventy minutes. What is the difference between the fitness of a like a top level Premier League player or like a a Championship player to the average person? Like how big a gap is that? Have you seen? Oh, it's, it's huge. I mean, I'd love to say that I've got the Spurs guys coming in here <laughs> and that's really, really well, but that's not the case. And I would love to say that. But um, listen, the, the the difference is the ability to be able to keep doing the same thing at a high intensity level over and over again, the repetitive nature of the sprints that they do on a consistent basis. Whereas, um, and that, that comes down to loads of factors, you know, the diet, the, the training regime, the rest, the recovery, everything. It goes into everything. So, you know, what, they, what they're doing at Spurs, I mean, I've been to Spurs' training ground, uh, lucky enough I've played in a behind-closed-doors game there, and, and you can just tell that they've got the best of everything. So there's no, uh, I'd imagine under, under Ange, there's no, uh, there's no stone unturned when it comes down to prep and it comes down to, you know, recovery, especially because they play pretty much like every every other day at the minute. And I suppose like, what, what baffles me as well is like at top level sport, Premier League level, uh, Ange Ball is praised for the high intensity. Liverpool players, the high intensity. Uh, now, I said I wouldn't speak about Manchester United, but here I am again already, well, less than four minutes into the podcast, I'm speaking about Manchester United. <laughs> Manchester United again, because I'm a... I'm a bitter, heartbroken fan, Simon. And when I look at Manchester United and their overpaid egomaniacs, um, we're hearing the complaints from inside the dressing room that they're doing too much running. Where is this too much running happening? Because we don't see it on the pitch. Um, it's it's obviously a different type of training that Spurs and Liverpool are doing than to Manchester United then. Or is it just an attitude problem, do you think? I think a bit of both, really. Like, from what I understand of like Klopp uh, at, at Liverpool, for example, I, I understand these pre-seasons at, 
are horrendous. Like they are literally running track and just laps after laps after laps. And but it's the buy-in from the players, the buy the buy-in from the players who really want to work for him. You know, there's a real togetherness from the manager down to the players, uh, and I'm guessing all around the football club. And Andrew's done that the same with Spurs relatively unknown person to I guess a lot of people and then all of a sudden has walked into Spurs with a you know, just a real nice way about him like don't get me wrong I would never want to cross him because he's got that stature about him that you think you know he'd give you a good kick if you uh, if you needed one um, but then with, with Manchester United it just looks like they've got too many you know what I remember used to be called like the Maradonas you know the ones who basically don't want to do the hard work but want to get all the praise for when they score a goal or when they win a game but they don't want to do the, the ugly side of the game um, you know I, I remember a great quote from Brendan Rodgers when he when he used to coach me in teams you need soldiers and you need artists and Manchester United seem to have loads of like the artists but they don't have any of the soldiers you know the ones who dig in deep for you the ones who do the horrible nasty gritty stuff on a cold, wet, horrible night and stoke away. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're those ones. Um, but they, they've got all the flair players, the Bruno Fernandes, the Rashfords and whatever, who really don't want to do the hard, horrible yards, but they want the praise when they do score the goals. Would you uh, put the, the current malaise at uh, Manchester United, Simon, down to Ten Hag? Uh, the ownership, the players, is there any specific, or is it just the whole, the club as a whole? Clubs as a whole is, a, is rotten from top to bottom. It yeah. is, is, there's been such unrest from from the Glazers down, and then the turnover of managers has not been great over the last sort of five or six years. And um, you know, but they they put managers on long contracts, and then all of a sudden they have to get rid of them, and they bring their players in, and then they get sacked after two years, and then all of a sudden they've got to get them out, and they, the new managers got to get new players in, and there's just too much turnover of players. Too many turnover of managers. Yeah, it's it's unsettling at the top, obviously, but in from being at football clubs where you can't, you know, you can't change what goes on at the top. Like you can only change what goes on on the field, and the players have got to look at themselves. The managers have got to look at themselves, and and what they're doing, obviously, at day to day on the training ground isn't working. So something really needs to change and, and change pretty quickly. Otherwise, Manchester United are going to go only one way. Another Irish, uh, ex-Irish international, uh, Simon, said that um, he was watching the United-Bormack game at the weekend and he said, you know, I don't think it's that the manager has lost the players. I don't think the players, it's a lack of effort. It's just a lack of quality that those Manchester United players just aren't good enough. Um, would you subscribe to that theory at all, Simon? Or is it, is it, is, do you think they have got good players who just need to be put more effort in? Yeah, I, it's it's very hard to turn around and say like Bruno Fernandes and Marcus Rashford are not good footballers. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. they are. Like genuinely, they've got really good technique. They've got you know really good ability. But at the minute, they've just lost that love for the game, and they're just not finding that system that works and the formula that works for them. Now that can come from a number of things of you know not winning games. Genuinely, like that that could be the the only thing. Because you saw like last year when Fernandez was doing really well and and Casemiro was playing really nicely in the middle of the park and it was they were a good they were a good outfit like for a small part of the season. Um, whereas then you look at uh, 
if if it's Ten Hag and if it's the way that he does, it looks like he's a big dictatorship. That's what it looks like from the outset. It doesn't look like he's a never going to be the arm around the shoulder of the Klops and the and the Peps and and what I'd imagine Ange is like. You know, it's not that one that he's going to get in there and have a have a cuddle and understand yeah. what your family situations is like. It's basically like you come in at this time, you train at this time, you you leave at this time, you eat at this time, and that's it, and you sleep at this time. And if you don't do it, then I guess you kind of have like a Jalen Sancho situation all, all over again with not just one player, you have it with, you know, 26, 27 players. Before Eric turns this into the United <laughs> We Stand podcast, uh, we'll talk about you for a second, Simon. I, we were talking about preseason there. In a sick way, do you sort of miss preseason? <laughs> um, not a 36, no. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, it's, it's one of those, you, you know you have to do it, but you dread it that uh, that you're going to have to do it. And um, But it is, it is definitely one of those things that when you retire and everybody's going back to pre-season, you kind of think, oh. <laughs> I don't miss that. <laughs> do one more, do one more, one more. Uh, but then I really, like, when I played in like some, you know, five sides and some some charity games and stuff like that, all of a sudden you realise that that preseason would have been absolutely horrendous for me. So like, <laughs> leave that one there, I think. Well, we're coming up to Christmas now as well. Like this is the period I would say you most enjoy being retired in a way because it's it's this period that people underappreciate what footballers do. They're stuck in hotel rooms on on Christmas Eve, on New Year's Eve, on on Boxing Day and stuff. So, like in terms of retirement, like is that something that you've enjoyed getting away from that element of the game? Um, I, I do, do. You know what? Right, I I actually didn't mind Christmas. Like I think Christmas is one of those. Um, those times of year that the games come around thick and fast and they, they it's just game after game after game. Yeah, okay, the travelling, the being away from the families and stuff like that is tough. But I'd imagine ninety percent of the managers are pretty good around Christmas. You know, they they especially cut like into December, they'll probably turn around to you and say, like, look, this day you gotta go and do your shopping, like get get all your Christmas stuff, send the wives and the girlfriends or whatever out, get that get that all done so that you haven't got to do that in like the last two weeks when we need you sort of focused on that. And then when it comes down to sort of, you know, the day before the day before the game, boxing day, then you got the one on like 27, 28, then 30, 31st, whatever it is over the, over the Christmas period. And you're playing like five games in 15 days or whatever it is. It's, uh, there's no training. It's just rest and recover. So it's what you do outside of the games and away from the training ground is, is the most vital part. So, you, you know, you try and try, if you're a footballer now, try and think smartly about what you get your kids for Christmas. So you're not having to run around after like, <laughs> yeah, in the garden, <laughs> get some mistakes that's why uh, that's why a lot of uh, footballers uh, who are dads buy playstations for their kids so they can just sit down and just chill unless your name is Jane Satchel Simon uh, so so just on, on that like fascinating uh, that's a great point you raise and I'm fascinated by the whole Christmas thing so like there would be times because he's playing on Boxing Day or as we like to call it here in Ireland Stevens is his day um, you would be in a hotel on Christmas Day like, I mean, how, how does that, would you leave on Christmas morning and go to the hotel or how did that work? Yeah, again, depends. Same same for like New Year's Eve as well. So um, some managers, I, I've had it all. I've had in on Christmas morning. I've had 
not train at all and I've had it in on Christmas sort of like late afternoon. Yeah. Um, and some managers will will determine what they do the following year on what the result was the previous year. So um, it, it can be whatever they decide. Uh, but so let's say, for instance, like you, you haven't trained, you would then meet at a hotel somewhere um, or you'd go to the, the stadium or the training ground and then you'd get the bus up and then you'd be in the, the hotel Christmas evening. But Christmas is kind of done then, right? Like Christmas seems to be like the longest day in the world. Like you get up really early with the kids, all of a sudden by two o'clock, everyone wants to sleep. Um, so by that time, everyone's like, right, and then you, you've got your bag ready to go. But if you've trained on Christmas morning, normally most managers tend to get you in, let's say around about 7.30 start. Like they really want you in, like get in, get it done, get out. It's, and it's literally probably about a half an hour, 40 minute session, like quick meeting outside, move the legs, nothing tactical, really probably a little bit of uh, set pieces and get out, you know, nothing, nothing. You'd probably be in and out in an hour and a half, nothing, nothing too strenuous. Not too or bad. gone the other way and, you know, nothing all the way through the morning and then meet at the training ground for a quick hour at like four o'clock, uh, get that done straight on the bus to a hotel. So yeah, there's, um, there's about two, there's about three or four different ways that people do it. <laughs> Difficult for players, I suppose, who have kids or young kids to, you know, Bob, to explain to the kids, look, the reason you have that PlayStation, that amazing bike, is because your daddy's a professional footballer and I have to go training now. <laughs> so that's the way to justify it, I suppose. But I thought it was Santa. Oh, actually, if there's any young kids listening to this, that's okay. Uh, let's move on <laughs> swiftly. What do you miss most about being a professional footballer? Like, is it the camaraderie of being part of the team that everyone's in it together? Is it like the training sessions or what is it that you miss most? The goals, scoring <laughs> goals. Um, I think I think this is, again, one of the reasons why I set up the, the F45 is because I knew that the, one of the biggest things I would miss would be the dressing rooms. So, like, the you know, getting in every day, having that, that banter every day, the chat about football from the night before or, you know, what did you get up to the weekend and that, all that sort of stuff. Obviously, there's no three points or anything that we talk about here, but it's, it's results here. But... That was the, the biggest, one of the biggest things that I miss about uh, about being a player now is is that whole dressing room um, togetherness uh, because there's, there's nothing like it. You know, if if I went into an office and did a nine to five in an office, you, you'd not you'd not be allowed to talk about a lot of the stuff that you talk about. Yeah, it <laughs> um, goes on in the locker room, stays in the locker room. Yeah, exactly right. Um, but yeah, so that that's probably one of the biggest things I miss. One hundred twenty goals in uh, in in uh, in over five hundred appearances for club and country. That's a pretty decent strike rate, Simon. Do you have a favourite goal? <laughs> you must have. Um, yeah, listen, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I think you'd be. This doesn't sound really big-headed here, but it'd be hard to find someone who's got a pretty good highlight reel as much as mine is. Like, yeah, you've got some screamers now. In fairness. So, um, and that's probably the most big-headed comment you'll ever hear on your podcast. <laughs> um, but I don't know, like maybe the uh, def. I'd say my top four would be like the guy I scored at Swindon, uh, the one that looped over my shoulder. Oh yeah, that, that one. Then scored a very similar one, Birmingham at home for Forest. 
my first Premier League, I was in there away at Spurs. Um, That's a special moment for you scoring that. Yeah, listen, I had my mum and dad in the, in in a box as well, and and sort of as I, as it was going in, I turned around and I could see them like amazing jump up and stuff like that. And it was it was just amazing. Um, listen, obviously, your first ever goal is going to be in there as well. Do you, because it's it's your first one. And that's the one that sort of makes you really believe. And, and then, do you still remember it clearly, Simon? My first one. Yeah, yeah. you do. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Northampton. <laughs> I was on loan. Northampton uh, played away at Leighton Orient. Uh, literally, I scored. And my mind had just blown. <laughs> I had no idea what to do. Didn't know where to go, where to run. Um, so yeah, it was. I do. I do remember it. Love that. Actually. You. I was listening to. Um, a podcast with Bryson DeChambeau, the golfer, and he he shot fifty eight for in, in a competition for live, and he was able to talk through every single shot of that entire round. Are you someone who like you remember your goals, but are you someone who remembers the anatomy of that goal as well? You remember what you did with your body? Were you like were you would you have found yourself being like a hyper focused type of player? Um, I reckon I could probably if you could give me the like. Uh, you're probably going to give me one as well and I'm not going to remember it, but if you could give me a game and I scored in it, I could probably tell you like how I was feeling or what the game was like. And um, I'm, I'm one of those people that actually can remember quite a lot. Are you going to point out a goal I, now? No, I got to point out a non-goal. And it was one of the most miraculous goal line recoveries I've ever seen and it was in your last oh, no. yeah Western <laughs> City Warriors in Sydney and like like I just saw I watched it again this morning Simon I was like like I don't even blame you I don't I don't blame you it was an incredible like I mean how did you feel at that moment like what just happened <laughs> I, think, I think I think my face says the story as soon as I <laughs> um, <laughs> no, do you know what it was yeah, oh, it was away at Melbourne City, and then I sort of got it under the I got it under the goalkeeper, and I was like, I, I kind of knew that it didn't have enough. Yeah, so I knew I had to go and like get another touch. But did I think that I had someone breathing down my neck? Absolutely not. Did I think I had two people breathing down my <laughs> neck? Absolutely not. But then yeah, it was, there was the whole. So he cleared it off the line. And then it hit his mate and gone. Ricocheted out. Yeah. I was like, I was just unlucky they didn't hit his mate and go in anyway. It was that good. It looked like a training ground move. (laughs) It was was incredible. You might have lost a a few yards of pace before that that, uh, chance. (laughs) Uh, You're one of... <laughs> You're one of a couple of Irish players that have gone to Australia and, and played some football. Damien Duff went, Wes Houlihan went as well for a short period of time. Like what what's that experience like? Because obviously like they're obsessed with football out there. Yeah, if you can hear the music now, the class has just started. <laughs> <laughs> nice back and back and track. Yeah. It's it's great, mate. It really is. And and I was one of these at the time I was sort of sort of gone away from the the English game and like my body was not starting to shut down but I was injured I needed surgery and stuff like that so I had the opportunity to go out to Australia and do you know what it was it was amazing like just sort of never never been never really expected to go either um, but I, I felt like I needed a, a bit of a reset and going out there seeing 
you know, the stadiums and stuff. And, and I'm speaking to Marcus Babel, who was the first person to sort of get on the phone to me. And he, he sent me a, a, a basic video of like the training ground and the stadium and stuff like that. And do you know what? It's, there's a lot to be said about waking up in the morning, seeing the sunshine in and, wow. and going out and, and having like an, an amazing lifestyle, like foods, foods, great footballs, really, really competitive as well. Like it's, Compared to what people probably think of it, everybody needs like wants to try and play the right way. So they play out from the back. They play nice, intricate football. Obviously, some are better than others, which is you know same in any other league. But it's there's a little bit different to you know playing on boggy, sandy pitches in like in the UK and then going out to Australia and playing in like 24, 25 degree heat. It's uh, there's, there's a lot to be there's a lot to be sounds, said for that. Sounds amazing, uh, Simon. And if I was coming towards the end of my career, I'd be going straight to Australia as well. You sell that well. <laughs> I, to be honest, mate, I think it was definitely a really, really good move for me. And I really enjoyed my time there. Um, obviously, it was sort of, it coincided with COVID, which, you know, wasn't great. But, um, you know, had that not happened, I probably would have stayed there for a lot longer. And as you alluded to there as well, Simon, obviously um, it was great playing in, you know, nice weather every day. But the facilities, uh, even for the clubs in Australia, in the Australian, in the A-League, the facilities of all these clubs are top-notch, aren't they? Yeah, well, you're playing, but our stadium was, uh, what, 30,000, 35,000 seat at full capacity. And, and you would get it when you played, like, Sydney FC and... They've now got MacArthur there, so like you, you would fill the stadiums like for the for the derbies. Obviously, because Australia is such a big country, you know when you're flying, every away game is pretty much a fly unless it, unless you're in sort of New South Wales or or if you're in the Melbourne area and you and you're playing locally. But so like your away support is never really the same. Um, yeah. But in terms of stadia and um, and what you're playing, like you know, you, you like I say. I was 33 at the time and you, you, I was playing at South End of like a seven, 8,000 seat stadium. All of a sudden you go play in the sunshine at 35,000 seat stadium. Okay, granted, there's not 35,000 people in there, but you still get the buzz of the, the big stadiums, lovely stadiums and everything else, which is great. Mm. In terms of your international career, Simon, like you've probably got one of the more interesting stories um, in terms of coming into the squad and that period of Irish football with Trapattoni. Can you just talk us through like the call up for Ireland, the feeling around that, and even just the idea that someone like Giovanni Trapattoni, who had an, a, a really good <laughs> reputation at the time, uh, the feeling of him wanting you to play for the Ireland squad? At the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I, in this country, in this country, <laughs> yeah, let's say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that was a caveat. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was it was so surreal. I'll be honest with you. Like I, um, I was obviously playing at West Brom at the time, playing in the Premier League, and um, was playing well. We were doing great, and um, I remember the press officer at the time. He said to me, he "said Listen, I've just had a, a call from um, the national team, and they, you know, there's a chance you could get a call up." And I was like, "Brilliant!" You know, I've, I've just booked my holidays. So I'm like, I'm like, "What do I do?" And, it, and he was like, "Listen." you go right and I was like yeah absolutely so you obviously had to cancel the holidays but in my in my head and I've said this numerous times in my head I was because I was 
you know, it was the Carlin Nations and I was literally, I, I, in my head, I felt like all I was going was to be a part of a training camp, just go and sort of see what it's like, then kind of get a look at me, see how I sort of integrate with people and then sort of, you know, if you do well at the start of next year, then you sort of get brought into the squad and then you play on from there. Um, you know, as it, as it was, I got called into the squad, trained like two or three days, then obviously played in the uh, in the Republic of Ireland versus Northern Ireland game, scored. Then we played in the Scotland game. We won that, end up winning the Carlin Nations. Then we go away, play in the qualifier, get the result there. Then we go off to massive. Uh, then we go off to um, where do we go? Uh, Belgium and play Italy, and it's and and score in that one. And all of a sudden, like. In four games, I scored two goals, and and I feel like I'm like a massive, massive part of it. And it's, uh, you know, it was just a in such a short space of time, such a surreal moment for me to be able to sort of go from someone who had never stepped foot on an international stage to score two goals, play four games, play against, you know, what is the biggest derby in our, pretty much Ireland history in Northern Ireland, and probably apart from England, and then all of a sudden. You're playing one of the best nations in the world in Italy as well, and you and you played in the Euro qualifier. So it was, it was just such a um, a surreal time, mate. I'll be honest with you. And it, there wasn't really time to sort of think about anything else other than just what being in the moment. Did he? Did you speak to him uh, when when he when that first call came in about you possibly declaring or playing for Ireland? Did Trap call you in any way? Did he have a chat with you? No, no. The first time I spoke to him was. Um, when I went in for, for lunch, um, he was sat around the table, him and Marco and, and all the other staff were all sat around and, and it was the first time I spoke to him really just then. And you went here, you went here. His English wasn't great anyway, so like the conversation <laughs> yeah, would, have been, yeah. would have been fantastic. <laughs> yeah, his, what was, who was his translator? What was his translator's name again? Uh, Maria or Maria? Uh, anyway, she wasn't there, Manuela. no, obviously. <laughs> oh, Manuela, that's the one, yeah, yeah. Um, you, uh, just that goal against Italy in Liège, uh, Simon. Um, I remember Stephen Hunt crossed the ball and you slid it in the back post and confirmed the 2 0 win. You got a bang off the post. How bad was that? No, it was fine. It was fine. Yeah, it was, it was just, yeah. just an impact injury, yeah? Yeah, it was just one of those, like, oh, I'll make it look as bad. Look, like I steamrolled in there. <laughs> <laughs> was there um, was there a rumor of you going to Celtic around that time as well, Simon? I vaguely remember. It was before before I went to West Brom. Yeah, so the three teams that were interested in me were West Brom, Celtic, and Newcastle. So three teams uh, that were sort of all in a bit of a transition phase as well at the time. So this is this is how my move to West Brom came about in a real quick form. So Celtic uh, didn't have a manager. West Brom had just uh, had Tony Mowbray as a manager and Newcastle had just got relegated and Shearer was the manager and he, he obviously wasn't taking over. So Newcastle didn't have a manager. But all three of those teams wanted me. So I had to wait for one of those to, to appoint a manager. So um, <laughs> Tony Mowbray was the only person out of the West Brom hierarchy staff who didn't want me at West Brom. So then when he went to Celtic, so that was my Celtic move out of the window. And then it was a race between Newcastle and West Brom. And then um, I got a phone call from Dan Ashworth, who was the director of football at West Brom at the time. And he said, uh, we're appointing our manager in the next couple of days. 
Um, he's on board. He wants to bring you in as well. Um, wouldn't tell me who it was. And then it was, um, and then Newcastle didn't appoint Chris Hewton until about four or five weeks later. So that's how my move to West Brom came along. And as a Celtic fan, who, who like, got there first? Who got there first? That's a that's a real uh, like sort of fork in the road. Like, would you have gone to Celtic? Is that somewhere that you would have liked to play football, or would you have preferred to just end up in the Premier League? No, do you know what I had? Uh, I had a chat with the Swindon chairman because um, we we were in really constant dialect uh, about people coming in with bids and everything else, and he was really good with me. And, and I remember sitting around the boardroom, and he said to me, "He said, look, we've just had a bid from Celtic," and I was like, "He said, I said, brilliant." Um, and he said to me, "He said, listen, don't worry about theoretically like the Scottish league. Think of like the European, like the." Champions League and everything else and the Knights and everything and I was like I wasn't thinking about the Scottish League I'm only <laughs> thinking about that you know yeah. and uh, so yeah it was definitely it was I mean it was probably on par with like I mean they're all really big clubs and and, and good football clubs and they were all all going to help me in, in one way or another um, but it was yeah it was definitely on my radar one thing I would have loved to have done uh, was go and play there yeah, I mean, as you say, the, the enticements of playing in Parkhead every second week in front of 60,000 passionate Celtic fans must have been a massive carrot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I watched the game the other night, the, the Celtic uh, Kilmarnock game, and you just... Yeah. Not a great one. You know, Not a great one to choose. There was a game on the other day as well about... Uh, and, and they had both ends of the stadium. And that, like even an away game feels like a home game, do you know what I mean? So like, you, you're, never, you're never too far away from a Celtic fan anyway. <laughs> well, you're talking to one right now, so there that that proves that point, right? <laughs> He's a resident in-house uh, Celtic fan. Gives us the lowdown on Ange Postacoglu as well. He's a big Ange fan. Absolutely. Um, before we let you go, Simon, you you played, you finished off with South End um, before you went to to Sydney. You were involved in a takeover bid with the club, were you? At one point in time. <laughs> Yeah, well, saying so I was involved uh, is, a, is probably... Or could, could, do you want to talk, talk us through that or what was, what was, was your involvement? involvement? Uh, so, listen, I um, was a local businessman who um, who I got shown a, a letter that he wrote to the chairman or the, the chairman who just left. Um, and I reached out to him and, and said to him about the takeover and I was like, listen, i I think it's going to be great if you if you get it over the line. I said I know the dealings with the chairman; it's they're very very tough. So if I can help in any way, um, please let me know. Within probably about a day, he, he got back to me. Um, we had a Zoom call uh, with him and his investors, who had like some serious plans for the not just the football club but for the city as well. Like they were they were planning on building like extra roads they were planning on building um, or di- redirecting train lines and uh, the stadium and they were putting like a big indoor arena that they were going to do for like esports and everything else they had really really big plans for, for the city obviously rebuild a training ground build a brand new stadium basically go down the line of what Brighton have done and build like in stages and, and get to the, the level where they're at now um, and where South End is is a big catchment area for the players who 
possibly aren't good enough for like the, the Spurs and the Arsenal academies and the West Ham academies and, and even like Luton that's just only up the road, Watford. Um, really, really good young kids to be able to sort of nurture through the South End Academy, but it just needs to be run properly. Um, and he put his bid in, but I think the whole point that he and his team didn't get the takeover was probably because he had a few run-ins with the, the old chairman before. So, uh, so I think he sort of cut his nose to spite his face and he wasn't, wasn't getting involved anymore. Yeah, yeah. And before we let you go, Simon, uh, you mentioned a couple of names there when you were talking about managers, and I want to throw this at you. You mentioned Tony Mowbray. You mentioned Chris Hewton. Uh, two possible candidates for the Irish manager's job. Um, I'm just wondering, is there any of the, the names that you've seen that you would love to see manage the Irish team at this moment in time? Well, it wouldn't be Steve Bruce. Okay. No, I don't think that would be a good... I don't think that would be a good fit. I just... I, I like Chris Hewton. I think I think Chris Hewton would be a really good choice. Um, but it, it, it's what what do we want, right? What we've gone from we've gone from having like experienced managers into um, Stephen Kenny, who is trying to nurture young players coming through the twenty threes um, into the first team. So if we then go and bring in like an older experienced manager, does that all then go out the window? Do we not then bring like the young players through again? Are we are we just gonna just go back to the sort of old ways again? So it, it will all come down to what do we what do we want? Are we are we wanting to nurture or are we wanting you know instant success or are we looking two campaigns ahead and we're trying to nurture nurture um, the lads through those two campaigns into into something that could be good. Um so I would I would try and go down the route of somebody younger, but with an experienced head on the sideline alongside them. That that would be my choice. I think it would be nice to be able to have that. Okay, right. Well then, Simon, it's, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Uh, get up there and tell them people to turn down that music. Um, <laughs> okay, <I'm there>, <laughs> yeah, and uh, and if I'm over in there, if I'm over your way, sometime soon I'll pop in for a class. Absolutely, welcome anytime. Cheers, Simon. Take care. So that was uh, former Irish international striker Simon Cox. Uh, a fairly uh, interesting career that man's had, in there. Yeah, it's a bit wild. Like he yeah. has played all over the place and made the step up most of the time that he was uh, involved. So I he mean, was a bit of an outlier when he came into the squad initially, wasn't he? But he, he proved trapped right in those first few games. Yeah, it was funny. He mentioned like how many good goals he scored. He's not wrong. If no. you go and watch Simon Cox's highlight reel, it's unbelievable. He's one of the rare people who straddle the line of, do you know that thing where he's like, uh, go- scorer of great goals, but not a great scorer of goals? Yes. He was both. Okay. Because right. he scored a lot of goals and he scored a lot of good goals as well. Yeah, it's one of the, it is a classic. You know, if you were to look at Simon Cox's YouTube reel, um, you would think, oh my God, 100 million pounds <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Way, when, if, Put if some you, mm's, mm's techno behind it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The worst <laughs> dubstep music you can possibly think of. <laughs> if Man United are linked to a player, I'm in, I go straight onto YouTube, I see them do three good passes, I'm like, yes, 100 million, spend their on it now, and that's probably what the, the reason is. Look, I'm, I've already come back to United. Well, then, what then. about you starting off the pod saying you're not going to talk about United until January? Three minutes into the conversation with Simon Cox. <laughs> what about United, Simon? What do you think? <laughs> I but, couldn't. In fairness, though, I was saying to you, um, I was listening to the Stick to Football podcast with Roy Keane and Ian Wright and uh, Gary Neville and stuff at the weekend, and they do their predictions. And they, Ian Wright and Roy Keane are a part of the team, and they were talking about the Bournemouth game, and they were like, oh, yeah, probably 2-0 two, two United. Can't, can't, I don't think Bournemouth will score. And I was screaming at the radio, being like, 
Bournemouth are going to win this game <laughs> because they were in unbelievable form. I think that's like I think that's five games now without the fight for Bournemouth. They seem to have finally figured out the system Ariola is trying to play, and they're flying. And yeah. then United are just United. And, and in Bournemouth were, were heavily criticised for bringing Ariola in ahead of Gary O'Neill, mm. um, but they obviously had they knew that how the quality of this manager took him a while to get going. But it seems that his ideas have landed and. They're starting to bear fruits. Well, I think it took a while for him to do it at his previous club as well. I think it's just one of these things where the Pep it didn't click with the City players initially. Same with Klopp, like it, these systematic managers, except for Ange Postecoglou, of course. <laughs> yeah, um, it it does take a while to get used to it if you're not used to playing that system. And I, I feel Gary O'Neill, while he is a good manager, and while he did show that on Monday Night Football there is more detail in his planning and his training, I think he still is very much on that further backstage of not being philosophically driven driven as much as Ariola would be. So maybe and Ryan Christie, former Celtic man, just took him playing him in the right position and he was the outstanding there on the on, on, on so the player, probably the best player on the pitch, I thought, you know. Uh, just on uh, the the game itself though, uh you said you would know you 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 fancied Bournemouth from the mm. start. Um I have to say I did as well. I know I think United fans a lot of United fans got carried away with beaten a really terrible Chelsea team, two goals to one, um, and Chelsea could have scored goals in that game as well. Could, could have scored more. Now I know United had a huge XG, could have scored four. It was a four point something, which was like the second highest in the Premier League all season. But it was just two bad teams going at each other. It was awful. It was an awful game, by the really way. Really low quality it was, game. Like, yeah. It was two teams playing really badly, and that always ends up in chaos. Yeah. And I mean, you don't have to like beating Chelsea on paper is beating Chelsea, and that sounds great. But at the minute, Everton would be ahead of Chelsea if they hadn't got their 10-point deduction. And people are talking about Everton being relegation candidates at the start of the season. So, I mean, that just shows you how badly Chelsea are playing. Shows you how badly United are playing. And, like, every team that United have beaten on this magical run that got Eric Ten Hag and Harry Maguire, the player... Player of the month, manager of the month. month. Yeah. (laughs) All those awards, like, there were teams United should be beating. Yeah. So, you know. The only good... I mean... Over the last few games, the only good win out of that lot was probably the Everton win. And, and even then, mm. in that game, Everton had a spell of 10, 15 minutes where they could have scored two or three goals and didn't. I think that first goal just shook them. And that was the game over once that Garnacho goal went in because that match was built up for like protests. Yeah, the pink cards and, and all you know, that. And then the next thing, <laughs> probably goal of the season is scored after, what, six minutes so or something? So the balloon like has popped so straight it's, away. So it's just like, ah, uh, well, yeah. move on to the next. And Seamus Coleman's back. Yes. So that makes a huge difference. And see him at the end, the yeah. passion he's shown to the fans. I mean, he I mean, must be the most loved man at Everton. And one, and one of the most loved players of all history, of Everton football history, Seamus Coleman. Yeah, and he loves the club as well. Yeah, he like, really does. He had he? the opportunity. So do you remember he was linked with United back in the day? Yeah. So he, he actually... Was like that was a deal done. Everton and United. Oh, was it genuine? Yeah, it was genuine. Like it, it was going to happen. The only issue was that United wanted uh, to bring him in uh, at in January, right? And Seamus Coleman didn't want to leave Everton until the end of the season. Okay. And the Everton were going all out. He was like, "Listen, it's okay." And then he was like, "No, I want to finish the season. I want to finish it proper, and I want to, I want to do things right by the club." So he's really old school in that way. And selfless. Mm. Imagine that, a selfless Premier League player. That's what you would call a, cl- a classy touch with the clapping hands emoji on Twitter. Uh, absolutely. And, and a, a type of player that Manchester United could sorely do it right now. Mm. Uh, anyway, let's move on swiftly. Move on swiftly from it because I'm just getting depressed. Uh, <laughs> let's go back to your favourite person in the world, Ange. Um, being on a terrible run recently. Um, but, you know, the caveat is a lot of injuries. But 
dismantled uh, Newcastle at the yeah, weekend. Tore them to shreds. Absolutely obliterated them. We were chatting about this with Keith Tracy a couple of weeks ago. Like, should he change his style of play? This is why he doesn't change his style of play. Because when he has his players back, he, they're able to do the job for him in, in different positions. Um, and then he got Richardson back, put him into the middle, Son on the left wing. Not only did he keep Trippier quiet going forward, he absolutely demolished him uh, when he was attacking. And and like in all these games, in all five games that they went on that winless uh, streak, they were leading. Yeah. And this was the first game where they they got the first goal, then they got the second goal. And, and then that's they the just, key. That's the key, yeah. getting the second goal and not doing something stupid before that. And they tried. <laughs> Boy, did, did they try. Even Romero tried. <laughs> this is Romero. Like, he, he looks like he could be a liability. As good as he is, and uh, he's just, he just seems to have this madness about him. Yeah. This Argentinian madness about him. Like, Argentinian centre-backs just have this, yeah, have this, that switch. This dark Remember ass. Rojo? Rojo, yeah, they just yeah. have it. Yeah, Martinez has it as well. You don't want to like, United. you don't want to like generalize, but the, that is a generalization that is correct. Argentinian defenders are just a bit chaotic, yeah. but like, the the problem is he's a really good defender. He's so good. So you have to make like you continue to make excuses for him because he is a really good defender. And he's only he's only twenty five, so yeah. like. He seems a lot older than he actually is. Maybe he matures then. Well, it's probably too late for him to mature <laughs> at this point. But yeah, I don't know. He's, he is a liability though, especially given the fact that you know they're still playing Davies as a centre back. Van Veen, Van de Veen seems to be like out for the rest of the year until at least after Christmas time. So, like, you think he'd have a little bit of cop on? Like, we're three 0 up here. I don't need to try break this guy's leg. Yeah, but, I know. Um, yeah, they all, they, all those Argentinian centre half. They all uh, pray at the altar of Daniel Passarella, <laughs> the classic Argentinian centre half in the seventies. Um, uh, another big, she's the biggest, probably the biggest win of the weekend, and uh, uh, and, and I can't wait to tell everybody if they listen to our predictions show, which we had at the very start of the season, who would do well, who would get relegated, who, and I said my dark horses for the Premier League were Aston Villa, and I'm feeling very smoked today, and because. Aston Villa, in the space of a few days, beat Manchester City, mm. beat Arsenal. 15 Premier League wins in a row at home. Incredible what Emery's doing there. They're very, very good. Like, deservedly up in the position that they are. They don't look... This isn't a situation where it just looks like a team riding their luck. They are just well-coached, have good players amongst it, have talent amongst it, have players who have improved, like Ollie Watkins, like... <sighs> He's doing a phenomenal job at centre forward for them. John McGinn ha- has that leadership role about him, and then they just have quality. Like the fact that they were able to drop Diaby for this game and bring in Bailey, and Bailey was phenomenal for them. It, it's just drop Diaby or rest them, whatever you yeah. want to call it. Like you know, but because he, he's been such a great signer for them this year, yeah. um, Pau Torres has been incredible as well. I mean, remember, here I am again, Manchester United. We're linked to him. <laughs> Only going to Solskjaer. Bring him back. He wanted Torres. We couldn't get him. And look what he's doing at Villa. Yeah, they have. So they play this incredibly high line. And I heard somewhere they have had 75 offside calls um, from the teams playing against them. Wow. Uh, the most because them, of that high line. Because of that high line. And what they're doing is very clever because people look at this high line and old school defenders will say, oh, that's like, like that's crazy. Like, I can't believe it. But they're banking on. VAR, they're playing to the strengths of the VAR system that if a player's marginally offside, this is going to be pulled back because they're so anal about it. Right. So, and they, like, that's... Do you think give, that's the motivation for that, Andy, yeah? The fact well, that VAR will decide. 
Well, Liverpool did it a couple of years ago when VAR was brought in the first time. They okay. they played a, a a line that was about five yards higher than it was the year previous, and it was to do with VAR. It was down to the fact that they knew, okay, we have defenders who can get back if it's not offside, but if it is, it if they score, there's a, a high chance it's going to be offside because the players they've they've so little room to work with. Like I think there's like three to four yards between the defensive line and the halfway line. So that's the space that the strikers have to operate in. So unless you are Haaland or someone special yeah. or the ball is played first time, it's very difficult to break that. Mm. You would think, you, I don't know, as, a, as an opposing manager going to uh, the likes of it, you would think, like I, for me, like even, at, even at normal Sunday league level, you think with a high line, everyone's licking their lips. One ball, boom, over the top. Yeah, well, it, it helps that Pau Torres doesn't have a beer belly like <laughs> Mr. Laz playing the Sunday League. I suppose, like yeah, and he's not running the way with a John player blue in his mouth and a dead right end. Sorry, what was I even thinking? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, so, so uh, it, like, it look, looks like genuinely, and we have, like, to all intents and purposes, a proper Premier League title race. Mm. So many clubs in, 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 in the running there. Uh, Liverpool uh, playing at their, their least favourite time of the day, half past 12. Great win away to Palace. Um, there was a there was a sending off. Um, your thoughts on Liverpool's performance? Uh, I thought Palace were quite good actually. Yeah, they were. Um, considering Roy Hudson it said some bizarre things before the game, basically about the Crystal Palace players really needing to realise they're not elite. <laughs> Did you? Wow, I didn't hear <laughs> that. Just like, they need to realise where we are. Like okay. we're a mid-table side. Like that's what we are. Which I think is fine. I I don't think that like there might be two or three players in that Crystal Palace team that can go higher, but other than that, I don't think. They're full of talent, other than like, like Olise and Eze and Gehi and like, yeah, that's probably yeah, you're, that's probably, the, that's that's probably that's the guts the, of it that yeah. you're looking at. They're going to go higher, but uh, the 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 sending off was harsh, uh, like, and uh, it did turn the game. Like did, if you two minutes later they scored exactly, and it's yeah, it's tough. It's tough for these mid table sides playing against the likes of Liverpool and Arsenal and the rest of the sides when you know there's if there's any incidents in the game, there's going to be like nine. Eight minutes added on, and yeah. it's basically an extra. You know, like I was listening to Pat Nevin talking last night, where the like eighty-five minutes onwards used to be the closing period. That's when you close out the game. That's that's there's still ten percent of the game left now. Yeah. That's crazy, that, isn't it? So like you can't stop at that point. So you can't really stop playing football until another ten minutes, ninety-five minutes or so. And that's what the Adams at the Villa game, or sorry, the Palace game, ten minutes of uh, yeah. So like. Uh, that 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 plus the five substitutions benefits the bigger sides more. So I think that's why you're seeing more last minute winners for the likes of Arsenal and Liverpool and these stronger sides because the players are just fitter, they're just better, they've got better concentration, and eventually pressure does give way to goals. So um, Manchester City uh, went to Kenilworth Road. Uh, people thought it was a potential banana skin. They hadn't won in four. Uh, they got the win. They went one 0 down, mm. <clears throat> and I suppose, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, if you look at Luton, I suppose, uh, and uh, they are really putting it up to the big teams, aren't they? They are going to cause problems going forward. I think going forward, Luton, oh yeah, everyone's automatic choice for being relegated. Maybe not necessarily so. So I think it's a shame that they didn't have Kenilworth Road for the first couple of weeks of the season. That's because right, I think yeah. you, you see the difference in them playing in their actual home stadium and them playing away from away from home. They're, they're a lot different because obviously that stadium is so different to everything else in the Premier League. Uh, they were they were great again. They were really good. It helps with Ross Barkley has decided he is prime Maradona. It's these unbelievable. Days. Like his the form is unbelievable. Yeah, um, he was linked with a Celtic move 
uh, not so long ago, and I said, "Nah, no thanks, no thanks." Utah, his better days are behind him. It's just his injury rate is horrendous. Like he has spent so much time on the injury table that I was. I'm surprised he's done so well to keep fit. But if you if like he is a player that is going to really help Luton this year if he can stay fit because he is. He was really good. Yeah, absolutely yeah. fantastic. Um, and, and a good, a good win for uh, City. No Haaland. Uh, tough place to go. Two one. F- fantasy football pl- uh, players just like scratching their heads, <laughs> pulling their hair out. Who's going to be my captain? Oh, Haaland, Haaland against Luton Town. Captaincy, no bother. <laughs> yeah, definitely stung me. But if you've been studying the Premier League, you'd know that going to Camel Road is a very difficult thing to do. Um, I want to go to our next uh, club in crisis uh, and the Chelsea. <laughs> I'm so glad Chelsea exists right now. I have to say, as <laughs> <laughs> a Man United fan, um, beaten two 0 and beaten well by Everton. Um, but I suppose not to be surprised about Reedy. Well, as I said, Everton would be above them now if they had not got that ten point deduction. Sean Dyche is just he's done like, a great he, job, yeah, isn't he? He's doing the job. Like Chelsea, it, what's it's going so on bad. in there? What's going on? Like I mean, like is he? Would you? Is it realistic to say and that? Pochettino is under threat. Well, I said it before this run started that, th- like, this is this could be the Poch could be gone before Christmas, is what I said actually, on this no, podcast. Yeah, yeah, you did actually say and that. And then the next thing they go and beat Tottenham, who were down to nine men, and people are like, ah, oh, Chelsea are back. And then they, they got a draw against Man City, and it's starting to look good again. Nothing since then. And like woeful, like really poor, like yeah. not even, like, I'm, I'm looking at, I used to enjoy watching the Arsenal fan TV. Afterwards, for giving it with Arsenal, and now it's moved to Chelsea, and the Chelsea fans are not happy. Not one bit. When you look at the midfield that they have, uh, Enzo and Caicedo spent over two hundred million, and uh, and they're being played off the park. Like you know, it's mm. it's it's just it's just crazy to see what's going on there. Um, do you think they should sack him? Do you think they? Do Do you think they will sack him? I'm. I don't know. I mean, I, I like with Poch, Like I suppose you, you would worry for him because of the reckless nature of how that club is run. Mm. Uh, Bowley coming in and spending a billion whatever it is he spent um, and I think he's probably expected that we should be top four by now we should be at least in the top four challenging top four uh, we should there should be a progression we should look good as if you know style, like the way Andrews come in made a huge impression at Spurs we should be seeing that at Chelsea now and I know they have a lot of injuries but they brought in so many players I think of similar level mm. that's the thing they brought in like the exact same player five five or six times. It's, yes, like, I don't know when, what the logic when, is. It's, it's when Spurs sold Gareth Bale and they brought in like seven number tens. And you're just, like, hey, what are you doing? Like they brought they <laughs> need they, be good? they need desperately needed a striker and they brought in four or five players who are wingers slash strikers who are none of them are really potent in front of goal and you can't really trust them to go on a, a, a running streak of, of goals. So. It's, just and then you have Poch like Poch after the game is talking about the January transfer window about like needing to bring in quality. You're like, what do you mean, bring in quality? You spent a billion over the last year. How do you not have quality? So I think he's talking about quality in front of goal. They do need Nkunku to come back. Yeah, he's like he's going to be like a January transfer <laughs> signing at this point by the time he's get back. But I'm telling you, he is not the he's not the silver bullet. No, nope. he is a great player. But he is not an out-and-out striker, and that's what they need. They need a. He's a not an out-and-out striker, and an no. He's just he's more of a more of a, more of a ten. He <laughs> is one of these players that you could play him as a ten, as a winger, as a striker, 
and he'll do a really good job. He's really fast. So he doesn't specialise in he it. Doesn't, he's not a specialised right. centre forward. So that's what I mean. He's, he's a really good player, like properly elite. But if you are a club that needs a Harry Kane or a Haaland or like a, a centre forward who's going to get you goals, Ollie Watkins, and Kunku's not that. Mm. So... Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I suppose uh, if you're Maurizio Pochettino, you should be a little bit worried. Um, uh, I suppose the 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 only, the only other side of the Premier League that we can look at now at this stage and uh, before we wrap up is the is the bottom of the table. Um, there was there was talk that Steve Cooper's job was under threat. If they didn't, if they lost the Wolves, they got a one all draw. Um, like Forest, Forest, another club who brought in so many players. Um, uh, I'm not sure Steve Cooper has any say on who who they're signing. There's so many players, so many options. Um, I I don't know. I don't know. I think I always get the impression that Steve Cooper is doing a decent job at Forest. What's your impression of Steve Cooper and Forest? And I, you know, like they're a newly promoted side. Mm. They're they're hard to beat. But under Steve Cooper, it's just been it's been a bit weird that they don't really have an identity. I think it's it's been part of. The rebuild that they did when they came into the Premier League, they brought in you know what was twenty like, odd 20, players, 20 players yeah. or so so that was obviously difficult for him. But it, it it's hard to know what he's really doing there, other than just surviving. They're sort of in that weird purgatory of they're doing well. They might survive this year, but will they go down next year? Probably still be in the race for it then. And it's sort of the nature of that club that where they are financially. But then you look at what Brighton did, what Brentford did, um, where they just had the system in place they knew what they were trying to achieve and they went about it in, in a really good way they were ambitious whereas all, apart from buying players I don't know if I've seen any ambition from Forrest to be anything other than relegation survivors, survivors every single year and eventually your your luck runs out so whether or not sacking Steve Cooper will change that or not is is really difficult. I'd probably hire Steve Cooper for Ireland, though. How <laughs> is like, any, any manager that comes on the market, I'd be like, ah, yeah, you know, <laughs> you do a decent job. I, I hope he gets a sack. <laughs> um, and then, no, before we leave, uh, Celtic, no, beaten. Come on, I have to get to talk. And it can't be always glorious Celtic, but... Um, uh, but still, I still, I still think Celtic are going to romp away with that league title anyway. Well, yeah, there's. Uh, I don't. Uh, mm, no, go on, tell me. I'm starting to get. I'm starting to get worried for are the you first really? time. Yeah, what's, Celtic, what's Celtic were eight, eight points ahead. They're they're now five points ahead of Rangers. They've got Rangers coming up in a couple of weeks' time, and they're just not playing well at all. Like, what's um, wrong, Andy? What's going on? Well, they've they've not got much quality at all. <laughs> which is an essential part of winning a title is having a little bit of quality the biggest surprise for me is that Brendan Rodgers come in Brendan Rodgers always known for possession based football teams good passers clean tidy um, clinical at times as well but Celtic have no control of games like in the second half in against Kilmarnock who should not be beating Celtic by any right no disrespect to him but they shouldn't based on the the, the history and the, the money gap between them and Kilmarnock just pressed them and just by pressing Celtic marginally they were losing the ball on the halfway line every single time they had no control in midfield they have Kyogo up front who was has been the standout player the last couple of years scoring you know 25 plus goals every single year and he's just anonymous under the system that Brendan Rodgers is playing right now so that really worries me okay. is that they have not been able to make the most of Kyogo's talent um, outside of 
uh, Matt O'Reilly in midfield, they don't have any real standout players where you're saying, like usually Celtic will have three or four players where you're like, okay, yeah, you will not be at the club very long. Right, we'll sell enjoy on that, you. going to be good. Yeah, we'll enjoy you while, while we can. Whereas right now, Matt O'Reilly in midfield is the only player you can really say that about, and that really is stark for a club the size of Celtic because, yeah, they need to be dominating. Like, Rangers are really bad this year, and Celtic are still only five points ahead of, ahead of them. If this was last year's Celtic side and Rangers were playing the way that they are, Celtic would be 12 points ahead. Okay, okay. So, okay, so tough times at Celtic at the moment. End is not convinced that Brendan Rodgers' return has been a great thing for Celtic, but time we, uh, time will show uh, uh, if that's true or not. Uh, we've come to the end of episode 38. End, it's been great talking to you as ever. Uh, thanks to Simon Cox for his contribution as well. We'll be back next week uh, with another podcast. But if you're watching on YouTube, join the conversation. Leave us a comment below. And if you're reviewing it anywhere else on all the other podcast platforms, leave us a review and give us a five-star review. And as I said, it's spelled A-M-A-Z-I-N-G. Thank you. Good luck. You've been listening to House of Football, brought to you by Sports Joe.